If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. I promise we will eventually get out of chapter 10. And I ask that you just bear with me a few weeks longer. I'll read verses 19 through 25. And the more I spend time in these verses, meditating on them and thinking about their significance for us as a church, for all the churches, really, the more I feel justified in spending this much time on these verses. Verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So just by way of recap, in terms of what we've said about these verses so far, just so you can have confidence that I'm not just uh, reorganizing thing and pre- things and preaching the same sermon, uh, I want to run through what we've said so far about these verses. In the first week that we looked at these few verses. That was all the way back in June, June 7th. And we looked at them as a whole. It's actually one sentence in Greek, if you can imagine, a sentence that long. That's common, actually. And and we looked at these three imperatives. It's better to call them exhortations. We could think of them as commands because they are, but they are for the whole group. It's not you do this, it's let us do this. And we... Uh, we looked at how they're interrelated. And I only noticed this after looking at these verses under a microscope, as it were, for weeks that I realized through a book I was reading on Hebrews that this is the Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. As Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And if you look at it, these three exhortations are essentially those three things. Let us draw near in the full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and let us consider how to stir one another up to love. You might ask, couldn't we just skip all that discussion about Christ the high priest and all the time we spent on the details of theology leading up to this point? Couldn't we just say, have faith, have hope, have love. Can we just stop there? And the point is that in order to live a life of faith, hope, and love, we need that foundation. That's the point of verses 19 through 21. We need the foundation of what Christ has done, who He is, how He works in our lives even now in order to live with faith, hope, and love. 
So the second week that we were in these verses, I tried to show how these three commands or exhortations are one idea. And I gave many preliminary thoughts or first things first. And they're all listed out on the back of your handout if you want to spot check me that we're not revisiting the same ground. Everything we've set up to this point, I, I, I feel like I can say, was, was low-hanging fruit, if you will. These are just things that, even if you just read it for the first time, that could be immediately said about these verses. The third week, be the one. These are commands or exhortations for the whole body, for the entire church. But you shouldn't wait around, if you're a Christian and you read these things, you shouldn't just wait around, well, I'm not in a community that really does that very well. I don't see that happening between other people, so I'm going to back off, stand on the sidelines, cross my arms, and wait for the conditions to improve, to enter. You can't do that. You have to be the one, whether you see it happening or not. In the fourth week, we try to answer the question, who is the us? Who is he talking about? Let us consider. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Who is the us? I tried to make the point, I don't know if it was successful or not, that he can't be, we can't read this to imply the whole body of Christ, Christians everywhere. Because he says in verse 25 that the way you obey these is by gathering, meeting together. Therefore, it must mean your church family. We can't just think generally about these one another commands in the New Testament and say, yeah, I'll do that for somebody one day. It is the people in this room. And last week I was blessed to have a break. Um, And maybe it was a break for you too from these verses. Uh, My father-in-law preached and I think it, it fit perfectly. Unlikely relationships in the body of Christ. That the gospel unites across lines that culture doesn't like unity across. That economical barriers, racial barriers exist. And usually that means that relationships don't exist. But the gospel destroys all that. It breaks all that down and brings unity and love between people that the world scratches their head at. So what is left to say? What is left to say about these verses with everything that has already been said? And what I want to do this Sunday is to do a detailed exposition or and exegesis, if you will. It's okay if you don't understand what those words mean. It'll make sense by what we do. To, to look at these texts under a microscope, especially verses 24 and 25. No more low-hanging fruit. We're getting to the real heartbeat of these verses. So let's sit together and take out your magnifying glasses and just see how beautiful and life-changing this final gem, this exhortation, really is. So we come to verse 24. And let us... Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
If what you're holding in your hands right now before you is the NASB, the NIV, or the ESV, and I were to ask you, what is the direct object of your consideration? What are you considering if you were to just go off a face value of this text? And the answer, grammatically, would be, how? Consider how? And yet... That's not exactly what it's saying. If that's what we're supposed to do in this community of faith, consider how to do something. That leads us to method, techniques, process, program, system. Be an expert at stirring. So your rate of stirring, your pattern of stirring, just just be really good in your practice of actually stirring. That's not the idea here. In the actual grammar, the, the direct object of consideration is one another. And I'll give you, in, in the handout if you have it, the bold headings under each section gives the literal Translation of it. Let us consider one another. This is where the King James Version and the New King James get it closer. It says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The New King James says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Do you see the difference? It's not that the ESV or the other translations are totally wrong. It's that... This idea is difficult to communicate in English. And if we don't clarify or use awkward wording, we can go back to our patterns and bad habits. Let us consider one another unto stirring up love and good works. It's clunky, but that's what we need to be thinking about. This word consider is important. It's not even the best word for this idea. And it's weakened by how we use it. Will you at least consider? It's like the, the, the final line of defense. If someone is completely not interested in listening to you, would you at least consider this? Just, just think about it a little bit, if you will. So considering one another, oh, that's considerate. That's not considerate. It's not a very strong word, how we use it. The only other place in Hebrews where the author uses this word is in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Consider Jesus. So it's stunning to me that near the beginning of where he really ramps up all this theology of who Christ is for us, he says, Consider Jesus. And then finally, when we get to chapter 10, he says, Consider one another. The NIV renders chapter 3, verse 1 in this way, Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Set your focus on Jesus. Another translation says, think carefully about Jesus. The New Living Translation says, and we're uncomfortable to to take that same degree of intensity and focus and put it on any other thing, but that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's why he reserves it for those two places. Consider Jesus with this intensity and this focus and also consider one another with this intensity and focus. So I'm going to try to build as we go through this 
examination this morning, a paraphrase for you. Let us focus our thoughts on one another. Let us focus our thoughts on one another. And at this point, I want to take an aside and and give you an encouragement. And you might ask, well, that's good for you, preacher boy. You're paid to read commentaries and study and know Greek. And and how, how am I to know that that's what's really happening in this text here? That, it, that what I'm supposed to consider isn't a method or how to do something, but to consider intently my brothers and sisters. And as I've done several times leading up to this day in, our, in my time here as your pastor, I've commended to you the ESV study Bible. I want to read to you the note here. It tells us exactly what is happening. This is the note on this phrase, let us consider. The third and final exhortation in verses 22 through 25, calls for serious thinking about other Christians with a purpose to stir up or provoke them in their love and service. That's uh, the notes there provided by Dr. David Chapman. He he has a PhD from Cambridge, so they get experts to build into this. I'm not paid by Crossway at all to tell you to get this. It is the best that exists. If you need help, if you want to understand what's really going on in the text in places where it's not exactly clear, pick that up. And if you can't afford it, I will personally buy one for you if you're committed to read it. It's that important to have a grasp of what's going on in the text. So I want to bring you to the first conclusion, and I'll summarize this for you. The first conclusion here is that Christians are not merely called to be familiar with or skillful in general ways or methods of stirring one another up to love and good works. Rather, we are to be familiar with and skillful in our understanding of our brothers and sisters. Only then will we know how we can stir them up to love and good works. Do you see the difference? Here's a short explanation. Be an expert in serious and loving thinking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. When we get this inverted, so many bad things happen. When Rather, you're focused on a method or a program or a way, and you're not concerned about the specifics of the character and personality of your brothers and sisters. This happens between husbands and wives all the time. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to do this for you. Yeah, but that's not exactly what I'm asking for or desire or want. Well, it doesn't matter because I'm... I'm being intentional with it. I'm being sincere. Why, why don't you respond the right way? Well, that's not what I was asking for. That's not what I was wanting. That's not my personality. This happens in coaching, especially in professional sports. There, there are coaches that are scheme-driven, and they will pick players that fit their scheme. And then the coaching change just happens, and... Well, you don't fit the scheme, and so it doesn't matter really how talented they are if you don't fit the scheme. Bye-bye. We can't have that mindset in the family of God. And in the household of God, why can't they just be more mature? Why don't they fall in line? Why don't they just get with the program? 
If we're to obey this, if we're to be experts in serious and loving thinking about our brothers and sisters, there's no substitute for spending time together, as I've said so many times. You can't just, very important word, you can't just be an expert in your Bible and obey this. You can't just be an expert in theology and obey this. You have to be an expert in serious thinking about your brothers and sisters. And there's no substitute for spending time together because otherwise you're not going to learn. And this carries the flavor of every day that we saw so long ago in Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So, are you an expert in considering your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or, are you an expert in pointing out his or her faults? Do you spend mental energy and emotional resources thinking on your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or, do you spend your time and mental and emotional resources comparing others to yourself? Or to your standards. Here are some ways to think. Some ways to kind of put this in a nutshell. It is not at all a wasted life or year or day or moment to commit yourself to better understand your brothers and sisters in this room. The church... All churches would be much better places if we turned away from the enemy's temptation to pursuing great things, even if we think that those great things are for God, and instead focused on considering and knowing who and what your brothers and sisters in Christ are. It's not about you It's not you and Jesus on this epic quest for meaning and significance. It's Jesus and his bride and his redemption of her and future with her. And maybe the reason we struggle so much with pride is because we're unwilling to forget about ourselves and our methods and our programs and our standards and expectations for other people and we don't focus on caring for one another. And what of this phrase... One another. This almost goes without saying. It's so straightforward, but it's often overlooked and neglected. It really does mean all of us and each of us to everyone else. So here's the second conclusion Christians are not merely called to have a close knit group of Christian friends who share common interests and maturity levels. Rather, we are called to consider all of our brothers and sisters, and especially those who need help as our top priority. In short, here's the short explanation. If we were to ask Jesus, or the author of Hebrews, who should I especially consider in this way? They would say, all of your church family. 
One another means especially all those you gather with. And this is proven by verse 25, which we'll get to next week. Not neglecting to meet together. God has providentially ordained the place that you're living, the group you gather with, so those people are God's answer for you if you were to ask, but who is my neighbor? Whoever you have access to who has need. Isn't that what the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us? That it doesn't matter if you know them very well, if you're the same as them, if you have common interests, it doesn't matter if there's a person in front of you or that you know about who is in need, especially in the household of God, that's the person who is your neighbor. And here's a few practical exhortations on this point. We need to reorient. First, we need to reorient our thinking. It's not just those that you like talking to before church. It's not just your friends. It's not just your family unit. It's not just your age group. It's not just those who share your life stage. It's not just your Sunday school class. Change your thinking. It's the whole family. Second, another way to practically change our thinking about this is that you need a plan. You don't fall into this. You don't stumble into this type of love and consideration. When you come to church, it's not about getting in cahoots again with your group. You ought to be on a mission to find a brother or sister who you can consider in this way and love and stir up. You might even have an idea of a person before you come to church or even days prior. I'm going to the household of God to encourage that brother, that sister. You may not even like them very much. And that's the point. How rich our fellowship would be. But we often come for ourselves. Our building up. Our encounter with God. Our experiences of the common graces that are poured out on the family on the Lord's Day. It's not about that. It is for you, but it is for you through your blessing of others. Isn't that the model of Christ? There's another practical way to change our thinking here. To, to simply believe in the providences of God in your everyday life. That it's not just random chaos. It's not like someone just took a bucket of marbles and threw them against the wall for your life. It feels that way, I know, and the more I become an adult. I've never really felt like I'm an adult. I just kind of happened into adult things, you know. But the more you live an adult life, it's just like, wow, there's, there seems to be no plan. There seems to be no reason or rhyme to all this. But God is in control. He is sovereign. There is not one maverick molecule. And so who you sit by, who you might have to sit by if we're limited in our chair space, who you pass in the hall, those are God's providences in your life telling you who is your neighbor. Now, I want to give you an encouragement, okay? Especially if you're, like me, prone to introversion. This can sound exhausting. 
It's too exhausting to think of encouraging or considering or caring for everyone simultaneously. Who possesses the strength for that save the Lord? Only very unique times can you actually encourage or consider every person. That's hopefully what's happening when I'm preaching. I'm trying to to morph what I'm saying. I'm thinking of people while I'm doing it. It's a good thing I don't have to do this every day of the week. That'd be interesting. But it's a good thing for my energy level that I don't have to. So, the normal function is to take this one another idea, match it up with God's providence in your life, and see who He's placed in your path, or put on your mind, or who He's drawing your attention to in order to love and stir them up and to care for them. The second encouragement I want to give you is is the simplicity of the parable of the lost sheep. It's not reckless love, okay? Just leave that behind. The point is, you have a hundred sheep and 99 of them are okay and don't need anything. There's one who does, who's in danger and needs help. So obviously, who are you going to go after and care for? The one who needs help, the one who's in danger, the one who's at risk of losing their life, their confidence in the Lord, their faith. Go after that one. Regardless of where you are, if you know a person or not, we're all aware of the one sheep who might be in danger or need help. And it's hardness of heart when we take the perspective of, that's not my problem. It's not my business. It's not my friend. I don't know them very well. I don't know how to relate to teenagers or older people. doesn't matter. The one sheep needs your help. Go find them. Go encourage them. So conclusion number three. Christians are not called to prioritize their own personal spiritual walk and experiences of the graces of God. Rather, we are called to pursue fellowship with and nearness to God through caring for one another. And here it is in short. The Bible defines being like Christ as loving and caring for brothers and sisters more than yourself. Let me say that again. The Bible defines being like Christ as loving and caring for brothers and sisters more than yourself. This is exactly how Jesus spoke to Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. You want to show, you want to live a life of love to me? I'll tell you how you're going to do it. You're going to love my sheep. You're going to feed them. You're going to give your life for them. We need to understand that it is not idolatry. For when we think of the love of God in our minds to mean essentially the same thing, as considering and knowing and seriously thinking about our brothers and sisters. Our time is better spent and more efficient in reaching the world if we commit to this kind of care and love for one another rather than systems or process or strategy. And I understand that might be an offensive point. If you have an issue with it, come talk to me. We have a 
discussion time prior to praying at 4.30. We can talk about this. That's why we have it. This next phrase, unto stirring up. I know it's, it's clunky saying it this way. Let us consider one another unto stirring up. That's literally what it's saying. Let me give you more of a paraphrase to get at the heart here. Let us focus our thoughts on one another in such a way to spark. And I like the word spark here. I almost use the word ignite. But I love the double-edged flavor, and it matches the double-edged flavor of the original word. The author of Hebrews using this word for stir in a positive way is unusual. It doesn't happen anywhere else. That's why the King James renders it provoke. Okay, But it, it is not inherently negative. This is not a free pass or hunting license to be a jerk in the family of God. Okay, I'm just going to go provoke everybody. Okay, That is not what God is commanding you to do. The idea is spark. I think, I think that works really well. The context is inherently positive. So we can spark something, like an argument or something bad, but we also use the word spark in a positive way, like with romance and, and uh, chemistry with a friendship. There was a spark there. The imagery here is that alone and without each other, there's no fire, there's no spark, there's no ignition to love and good works. Our hearts grow cold in isolation. Many people speak of a dry season or spiritual wilderness. The, the, the image given us here is that the solution of that is gathering, meeting together, and having a ignition-type effect on each other. And the idea is also that this type of considering that we've already been speaking of is the stirring up, or, or it provides the spark. There's an end goal with this type of consideration we're called to. It's not just that you're supposed to think really hard about somebody. The point is that you would consider them, set your minds on them, focus on them in such a way that it actually leads to a spark for love and good works. So the fourth conclusion then is this. Christians are not called to be cold and calculating in our consideration of other Christians so that we can get them to behave. There are tons of books out there that talk about how to ensure certain behaviors in other people, how to manipulate and to control people, how to coalesce people, set a vision and get everyone to follow how to make it happen. Rather, we are called to set the concern and affections of our hearts upon them in such a strong and loving and selfless way that it compels others to love and good works. In short, this is the short explanation, the intensity and selflessness of our consideration and thinking about others is itself the engine for sparking love and good works. It doesn't have to be grand acts of service or sacrifice. But you know it when you see it. You can 
peer behind the simple acts of those who love you and see their care and concern. Has you ever been stunned by someone's concern and care for you? And maybe it was nothing big, nothing spectacular, but you see behind the veil and realize how much concern and care they operated in to do the thing they did for you. And that that sight of their care and love, setting aside whatever it is that they did for you, is what inspired you to respond in gratitude and love. That's what we're talking about here. I can think of so many examples in my life, but I want to give you one. I have like five written down here. I, I don't want to bore you with personal details from my life, but I'll give you one. I was going to a conference. It was a regional conference, nothing huge. And uh, the main keynote speaker and I just happened to be in the line for the lunch together at the same time. And it was near the end he was talking and I was talking to other people and we just happened to line up in the same line and he just started talking to me. If I told you his name, some of you might recognize him. He's more for like theology nerd types, but we just started talking and he invited me to sit with him. And I'm a college student, a seminary undergrad student at this time, so I'm no one important, no one that he would benefit from, from making a connection, no network payoff for him to speak to me. And we sat together the entire hour for lunch talking about ministry and the gospel and the pastoral care for people. He didn't know me. He didn't know what I needed. He didn't need to know what I needed. He didn't need to know me, but that concern, that setting aside of personal preference and gain enabled him to so bless and encourage a young guy who was trying to figure things out. So I only remember two or three things that he said to me, but the fact that he had that level of concern and care to just sit and see me as a person instead of a, a, a person on a, a hierarchy of benefit for himself. Huge. And what about us? We have had, especially in this season, many times where we can show others that it's not about us, that it's not about our preferences, but it's about our brothers and sisters. And I think many of us have missed many of those opportunities. We have insisted on our way, our version of the story, whether it's true or not, and insisted that other people fall in line. Or brothers and sisters of ours who are staying away, who would otherwise be here. If I had this kind of, this is the immediate application to ask yourself this. If I had this kind of concern and affection for my brothers and sisters, what behaviors of mine would be different? Just as Jesus says, for you had compassion for those in prison. And you, uh, I'm sorry, this is the author of Hebrews later in verse 34. He commends them. He said, you had compassion for those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We 
We have so far to go. Love and good works. This final phrase here. We've been referencing these two, our entire examination so far. We've been mentioning it in each of our conclusions, but we need to end here at least with answering a few questions. What do these mean? What do these words mean? Love and good works. The word love here in the text is the word I hope you're familiar with, agape. And it is used to refer to the love of Christians to one another, the love of God to His people, the love of God, of God's people to God Himself, and the love within the Trinity. So, let's ask a question. Which of those does it mean here? In what sense is agape used here? It can't mean that we spark love in God's heart for us, because He loves us infinitely and fully in Christ already. God can't love you any more than He already loves you now. So we're not sparking love in God's heart towards us. We're also not sparking love in God's heart towards God, right? He already loves Himself in Christ and by the Spirit infinitely and perfectly. That can't change. So the only two left is it could mean that we are sparking love for one another or love for God. And when the Bible often doesn't give you an answer to which one it means, you can most of the time, not always, but most of the time assume it means both. Which, for me, and I hope I can show you why, this is stunning. The only proper root and source of our love for one another is the love that God has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So they are, in effect, the same love. God's love is perfected in our love for one another. And we'll discuss the good works next week. That's mainly in verse 25. Let me finish out the paraphrase here. Let us focus our thoughts on one another in such a way to spark godly love and worthy acts. That's probably why they don't pay me to translate the Bible. But that's what I would give you as a paraphrase of what's happening here. I think worthy acts best describes what's being said, because if you just say good deeds or good works, you might confuse that with negative things that are said about good works in other places. And we'll talk about that again next week. I want to end with the discussion of what this godly love, this agape love, is meant to mean. It can carry a double meaning, as we've already said. Love for God, love from our hearts to God, and love towards one another. Let me tell you how I was going to end this message before I really thought and pondered about the implications of this. I was going to say something along these lines. How desperate we are. How needy we are for God to move by His Spirit to awaken in us a love for Him and a love for one another so that we can even walk in obedience here. And while that is very true, that's not what's being said here. Christians are not merely called to wait patiently and pray for God to produce in other believers love for God and love for one another. Rather, 
Christians are called and ordained by God to be the very means He uses to spark love for God and for one another in each other's hearts. That's amazing. Here's the short explanation. You have the charge and privilege to spark in the hearts of one another the love for God and brother and sister that only God can give. And that's not a contradiction or a paradox. If you really understand this, this is profound and it changes everything that we might think about our life together. We're getting very close to the heart of the promise of the new covenant itself. Is it just the mysterious, the behind the inner curtain of the spirit inside a person? Or is it the mundane and ordinary relationships with one another? It's obviously both. But you, you, brothers and sisters, are the way that God is going to get to the heart of another person and awaken them. To love for Him and for one another. If you understood the privilege of being the means that God by His Spirit is going to use to spark and awaken a love for God in another person, I think it would change everything about your life. This is the honor and glory of merely being in Christ that you've been given that privilege doesn't matter what degrees you have, what your career is going to be. Nothing of that compares in glory and eternal significance to sparking the love for God in another person's heart. So instead of ending with a flourish of how we're so desperate and needy for God's Spirit to move in us, even though that's true, I'm going to speak in obedience to this exhortation. And I want to speak so as to spark love in your hearts. And I want to do that by reading again verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, we are a family because of the work of Jesus. This family that we've been brought into, brothers and sisters, is more real, more significant than your biological family. And it is forever. You and I are bound together by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence because of the work of Jesus. Our, our assurance is found in Him, not in something inside us. We've been given sure confidence because of Christ Himself. We have confidence to enter the holy places. We have direct and unhindered right to enter the holy places in heaven by the blood of Jesus. You don't just have permission to enter the holy places in heaven. You don't just get a pass, like a visitor's pass, to go into those places. You have a right to enter the heavenly holy of holies because of the work of Jesus. And you are welcomed with an ushering in of the festal gathering of angels because of the work of Jesus in your heart. 
And not just one day in the future. Now you have permission and welcome and ushering in into that place. By the blood of Jesus. At the cost of his son, God did this for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? The love of God is seen and known in the cross, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. This is a new and living way. This isn't just one day when you die, you'll be able to enter into this place. But this is a new and living way. You have access to the Father now because of the work of Jesus. Jesus and his work is not just some bridge that you cross over one day when you die. Even now in Christ, you have been made his. He is yours so that All that he is and all that he possesses are yours by right. The Father even is yours. You have the Father just as much as Christ has the Father. And it was not merely a plan that the Father unfolded and Jesus had to follow in in some mechanical sense. Jesus opened the way for us through his flesh. This is a perfect example of this kind of concern in thinking about us that has the power to stir us up to love and to good works. As Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. When you understand the love of Christ for you, it doesn't, you don't even really have to put a label on it. You could be suffering mightily. But understanding Christ's love for you compels us to love one another and to good works. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have such a great high priest. It is so impossible for Jesus to stop being the one who stands for you before God, who prays for you, who leads you in the praise of God, that the Father seals his commitment to Christ being this only and forever mediator with two oaths. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Your salvation depends on nothing other than Christ continuing as high priest. And God has so committed himself to Christ's rule as high priest forever that it is the same as God's commitment to being God. Do you get that? the same thing as to say God is committed to love you and to complete your salvation in Christ with the same energy and power and finality as when he says his sacred covenant name, I am. 
May we draw near with the full assurance of faith. And may we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And may you be stirred. And may these words and my concern and love for you in saying them be the spark that ignites godly love for God and for one another and worthy works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our glorious inheritance that you have so radically worked for us. Pray that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that in our gatherings we would spark this love and concern for one another. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.